So Susie and I flew out of the country uh, the Tuesday before this passed. The, the flight went pretty good. It's a long flight. You have three flights to take with a couple hours in between. So it takes you about 18 to 21 hours to get to your destination. When we got there, our luggage was lost for a day. So I was wearing Susie's clothes. No, not really. <laughs> but uh, a couple of the brothers drove back to the airport. It was a three-hour round trip. They picked up our luggage and we spent a, a week, a good solid week in Romania. Um, I was interviewed on a, a radio show. I met with a group of interdenominational pastors. I had a couple meetings with the church elders. I preached in the church on Sunday. I cut a short video for an initiative they're doing in Romania, defending biblical sexuality. And we had lots of time to spend with Pastor Florine and Petronella and their four very amazing kids. We had a great time with them. And I'm here to tell you that the Lord is working in Romania through this church plant that we've been able to sponsor. They're coming up to their third anniversary, and there was about 70 people in their church last Sunday. So we're grateful for that. It's in northern Romania in a place called Kampalung, Moldovanesque. In the north, it's very beautiful. If you ever want to go to Romania for a, for a holiday, it sort of looks like a, a miniature British Columbia. It's a very scenic and beautiful area that is sort of a mix of the old traditions and modernity. So you'll, you'll see these modern EVs whipping down the road, and then along the side of the road is a, a gypsy with a horse and a little cart, you know, hauling wood or whatnot. So there's this old and new mix in, in the country, and we, we thoroughly enjoy it. The climate is very similar to this area of the world within a couple of degrees. So we had a great, great trip there. During the trip to Romania, I, I had a chance to meet very briefly with Pastor Florine's father, who will turn 90 this coming January. And through the translator, we were chatting a little bit, and I was, I was hearing about his story. He, he pastored uh, in, in the Christian church in Romania from 1968 until 1998. So much of his ministry took place during the communist area. And the one thing he said to me is that it was horrible. He said, it was horrible. Pastor Florine was telling me that one of the darkest days that his father experienced during communism was a time when he, he had been, I guess you'd say, arrested or detained and taken in for some interrogation, which apparently was quite common during that time. And they were pressuring him to denounce his faith in Christ, and he refused. But they said, we want you to come, come with us into another room. And I'm not sure if it was through screen or glass, I didn't ask, but he came into this room and he noticed that they were in the next room interrogating two men from his, his small congregation. And he said, the darkest point in my ministry was hearing these men denounce Christ on the other side of the glass for fear of going to prison. And... He's just said to me, you know, this, this, this was very, very, very hard. And I thought about that in relationship to many of the things that are taking place in our own country. And of course, evil always repackages itself in, in new clothing, so you don't always see it coming. But every Romanian that I spoke to about this issue agreed with me that what is happening in Canada is simply 
a reconfigured version of communism. And so there's a warning uh, that they, they issued to us. As we look at our own country, if you're aware of what's going on in Canada, I'm sure you would agree with me that we have entered into an unprecedented area, or era rather, of anti-Christian and anti-Christ hatred. The world literally hates Christ and is not afraid to tell you that. And many of our laws and the policies we see in all of the big institutions, whether it's the police force, whether it's universities, educational institutions, has a hard bent away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I suspect, I suspect that it will probably increase in its intensity in the coming years if what we've seen in the past few continues on the trajectory that it is headed in. So we might want to ask ourselves a question, how do we persevere? How do we continue to bear fruit as Christians in a culture that is increasingly bent away from the laws, the principles, the virtues, and the values of the Lord Jesus Christ? One of the biggest obstacles, of course, will come from within the visible church. When I say visible church, I mean those that declare with their mouth that they're Christians, of course, we know there's a difference between the invisible church and the visible church. Not everyone who's in the visible church is part of the invisible church. In other words, there are sheep and goats in every Christian church. But as we look around at the, the Christian church, as it would call itself, some of the biggest obstacles will come from compromise in the Christian church. Some of the biggest discouragements that we experience will come with similar events to what this aged pastor experience with Christians who are compromised, with Christians who are conspiring with the government, with Christians who are promulgating the various antichrist ideologies that have ransacked Western civilization since the 1960s. So how is it possible to retain a joyful outlook when the pressure is being turned up? Well, I'm here to tell you it is possible. And there is good news to be found in the word of God. Join me in Acts chapter 14. We're going to read and study verses 1 through 7 and learn from past generations. And we're going to ask this question. How can we be fruitful in ministry even when persecuted? Again, how can we be faithful and fruitful in ministry when we are being or will be persecuted. Well, here we have a marvelous example of both persecution and fruitfulness happening at the same time in the first century church. And this has repeated itself through history, situations like this. So the word of God says, now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number Super encouraging. A great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But, so in the midst of the good stuff, there's always the bad. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. They bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Not a surprise. In order for evil to triumph, they have to have their 
supporters, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Greeks with their rulers, government officials, all part of the plan. This wasn't just mobs on the street. This was part of the aristocracy, the technocracy, the the rulers and governors all conspiring together against Christians. To mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So we see a sequence of events. They go, they preach, they have some success, spiritual success, they bear fruit. There's intense persecution, and then they continue to preach. So the persecution doesn't stop the preaching, and the persecution doesn't stop the fruitfulness. So let's kind of think about this a little more fully and try to draw some application for our present lives. So to be successful in ministry, the first thing you have to do is you have to willingly go. It sounds so simple. It's like Christianity 101. I came here to hear this. Like I could have figured this out on my own. I get it. Not everything that we preach is particularly profound. A lot of it is very simple, but we can easily forget that, which is very simple. If we're going to be successful in ministry, we have to willingly go. In Iconium, the apostles went, these two choice apostles, and they preached the gospel. So Iconium is sort of middle, middle territory in Asia Minor, above Cyprus, maybe a week or so's travel, week or two travel from, from Jerusalem. And here they follow what we now see as a tried and true method. We've seen the, the apostles enter into various cities already in the book of Acts. We're about halfway through the book, by the way. And the first place they go is to a synagogue. So they go to a place, they're Jewish, so they go to a place in a Greek city where they can make natural connections. This this is strategic. If you go to a city, you go to a neighborhood, you go to, you, you, you walk across the office to share your faith with someone, why would you not want to try to leverage some of the natural connections that you would have there? So they, they go to the Jewish synagogue. There's natural connections and they preach the gospel and many people believe. Now, they knew that they were taking a risk. And I don't know about you, but I think all of us would have to admit that by nature, we're all risk adverse. Who, who likes the idea of sticking your, your neck out and having your head chopped off? Who, who enjoys? I mean, if you enjoy persecution, something is wrong with you. You need counseling. Sign up with one of our Christian counselors. Get help. It's, it's not natural to enjoy persecution. And because we don't enjoy persecution, our temptation might be, well, I'm going to let someone else do it, and I'm just going to, I'm going to stay quiet. I'm going to hunker down. I'm going to get in my little holy huddles with the Christians that agree with me. And I'm not going to be the guy that goes. But we remember Jesus' words, our Lord's words to us. We're to go into all the world and we're to preach the gospel. This doesn't mean that every person is called to literally get in a plane, a boat, or paddle their canoe across the river. But we must go where people are. 
Again, for some of you, that might mean getting out of your cubicle and going into the lunchroom at work and actually having conversations and building relationships with people at your place of employment. It may mean, surprise, surprise, I know this is Canada, we don't talk to our neighbors anymore. It might mean meeting your neighbors and building redemptive relationships with them for the purpose of sharing the gospel. If there are people, we should have a heart and interest in going to those places. We also have the benefit, there, there are many downsides to the, the cultural context we find ourselves in in Canada, where there's so many godless ideologies and religions taking root in our country. But one of the upsides is that the world lives in Windsor, Essex. People from all nations, tribes, and people groups have moved here. And there are opportunities for us to reach them for Christ. But we need to be proactive. We don't say, well, we're going to wait for them to come to us. We need to go to them. And I would just encourage you to prayerfully consider who are some of the unreached, overlooked people that God may have already put within your reach that you just haven't been thinking about, that you haven't been focused in on. You know, there's, there's going to be probably, I'm, I'm going to guess, 12 or 1,300 people that come into the doors of this church today. And each of you has at least 10 or 100 friends. Uh, imagine the exponential opportunities for ministry. Just this one little church, this little speck on a map, has in Windsor, Essex, to go and reach people from all over the globe for the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing we have to do if we're going to be successful in ministry, we don't run, we don't hide, we go, and we are faithful in going. Now, when we go, we don't just stare at people blankly. We must preach boldly or boldly preach. Again, this might sound like Christianity 101, but if you're, if you're aware of what's going on in the West, especially in the Western church, you'll know that there is compromise all over the place in denominational offices, in local presbyteries, in denominational settings and local churches and chaplaincies, the Christian church is filled with compromise. You might say, well, they're not Christians. Again, I'm talking about the visible church, the church that expresses itself in culture. There's compromise all around us. Some examples of this I've seen as of late boggles my mind. Christians attending so-called gay weddings, somehow thinking that's their witness. You're a witness to a, a covenant by showing up, you're affirming it. And yet we see many Christians think this is okay. We can, we're going to gay weddings. This is part of our witness. No, it's not. It's not your witness. It's a sin. And you need to repent of it. Closing churches for summer sabbaticals. Let's close our church down. Give people a break. You know, have a rest. Go, go sit on the beach. Because it's so laborious coming into an air-conditioned building and worshiping Christ for 75 minutes. You know, it cramps my style. Sporadic attendance while we show up when we have nothing else to do. This is a problem in the Christian church. A lack of spiritual disciplines. We still meet Christians. I just don't read my Bible. I don't pray. I let other people do it. Christians having sex outside of wedlock. Somehow thinking that this is acceptable, that God's going to overlook that. 
the proclamation of false gospels, that there are multiple paths to heaven. Jesus is one way, but there's a lot of other ways, some people claim. Materialism, an inability to live generously and self-sacrificially, but a desire to, to collect, to collect, to hoard, to build up a terror that you're not gonna have enough money at retirement. Materialism is a massive problem in the Western church. The promotion, promotion of all the different aspects of the, the woke agenda. We see this in the church on a regular basis. I mean, it almost seems at times that the majority of the church thinks these things are somehow okay. Where do they originate? Very simply, they originate in inadequate preaching or an inadequate application of proper preaching. Simply, it's as simple as that. What does bold preaching do? Well, bold preaching drives the goats out of the flock. Bold preaching drives the goats out of the flock. And it also drives the wolves out of the flock. Because wolves like to hang around sheep. We have a little farm. We have some cattle. One of my cows was attacked by a little wolf. We call them coyotes. Shredded its ears. This is normal. Wolves attack. They don't come and hang out with and build relationships with livestock. They come to kill and destroy. And there are wolves in the Christian church. Sometimes there are even wolves in our own church. What does preaching do? It drives the wolves out of the flock. And it drives the goats out of the flock as well. It repels and it also attracts people. This is the nature of biblical preaching. As lives are transformed, the gospel pushes and the gospel pulls. The gospel separates and it unites. It does both, often at the same time. And so we preach the gospel. There's a temptation. Well, I'm just going to preach the, I'm just going to appreciate the, uh, preach the part of the gospel that attracts. No, you preach the gospel that attracts and you preach the gospel that repels. Another way of saying this is you preach the gospel that transforms and you preach the gospel that brings ju the judgment of God into the mind and heart of those that are living in sin. Brothers and sisters, there can be no revival or survival without bold biblical preaching in any Christian church. There can be no revival and there can be no survival. You might limp along for a few generations playing church. But the true church that is going to survive or be revived must expose itself to biblical preaching. This is why we often tell people, if you're ever offended or convicted when you sit under the sound of the preaching of God's word in this church, consider yourself blessed. I do. Because you might say, well, you're the guy doing the preaching. Well, I'm also the guy listening most intently to what's being preached. I'm listening to this myself. I'm asking for God to work in me as he is working in you. We could also remind ourselves that when it comes to spiritual attack and warfare and all the stuff that's going on in the world today, ultimately it's always a battle for truth and authority. That's what it all boils down to. All sin all sin is ultimately an attack on authority. It's either an attack on God's authority or it's an attack on the authorities that God has set up. All sin is an attack on authority. It's an attack on truth. 
It's an attack on what God has declared. Do you remember in Genesis 3 when the serpent was tempting the woman? Did God really say? Remember when he said that? What's he doing there? He, he's questioning God's authority. This is the heart, this is the root of all sin. Did God really say? Well, when we preach the word of God, our, our ultimate intention is to say, this is what God says. This is what God says. Well, if you don't tell people what God says, you're just going back and you're recommitting the Edenic sin. You're questioning the word of God. Now, you'll notice here, that when they preach, there's a couple aspects to it, just to break it down a little bit more. They, they disseminate content. They're preaching for the Lord. They're preaching about Christ. They're preaching about the ministry of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, of course. We're not told the nature of their preaching. In We're not told the specifics of their preaching, but the nature of their preaching centers on Christ, which all biblical preaching must do. And there's also a personal aspect that says they bore witness So when we preach the word of God, we can talk both about what Christ has done and what Christ is doing in us or has done in us. So part of preaching is testifying. It's witnessing to what you've experienced and what you have learned. All right, so they go. Secondly, they preach boldly. Third, uh, we bear fruit. So many believed. God's gospel, let's remind ourselves of this. God's gospel is predicated founded on, based on his authoritative claim to be king of kings and lord of lords. His claim to rule all men. And because Jesus declares himself to be the king of kings and lord of lords, his gospel is global, not localized. God's gospel is for the world. God's gospel is for the world. It's global in its scope. That's the intention of the gospel. And it actually has that effect. Here is another example. We we met Cornelius. We met the Ethiopian eunuch. We've seen other instances in Acts where Jews and Gentiles are coming to faith. Here's another one. Both Jews and Greeks, meaning Jews and Gentiles, come to faith in Jesus Christ. So I got to ask you a question. Do you believe, do you believe that God's gospel is still operative in this world? Do you believe that God is still working around the globe to win people to himself? Or are you one of those Christians that has thrown him a towel? Well, we've lost, we're done. I'm just waiting for Jesus to come back. Hopefully it's today. All is lost. What's your mindset when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel. These two stories might shock you, but I'm holding on to a Bible and they're absolutely true. Recently, I met a Christian leader that asked me about what God is doing in our church. And I was talking about the baptisms and many people coming to faith in Jesus Christ and in the fact that in 22 years, I don't ever remember a Sunday where at least one lost person wasn't in our church. And I knew a little bit about his context where like no new people ever show up from the best of my knowledge. And he he sort of half jokingly said to me, well, well, maybe at some point I'll attend your church to see if it's actually true. And I thought to myself, 
This is the defeatist mindset. This is a man of faith that doesn't actually have faith. He doesn't actually believe that God is moving in hearts and lives and changing people today. Another person, this is secondhand, said to me they were at a local church uh, with, with a gathering of other believers and they were talking about, and this is just, we're not trying to draw attention to ourselves. I'm just using this for illustrative purposes. They were talking about the many baptisms that have taken place at Harvest Bible Church. And they said, well, we don't actually believe it. We think they're lying. Well, these aren't like, these aren't like private baptisms in my office. <laughs> You've seen them. You've heard the testimonies. These aren't paid actors. <laughs> These are people you know and people you've invited to Christ. But I thought to myself, how sad to have this mindset. Well, there's no way that God can be saving lots and lots of people in Canada. I mean, it's cool to read about these events in Acts, but I think God's kind of vacated the scene and we're just waiting for Jesus to come back and make all things new. Well, you're not going to get anywhere if that's your mindset. Now, we understand that there are, there are seasons of fruitfulness. There are times when there's not a lot of fruit being born because when you faithfully preach the gospel, you might be actually reducing the size of your church or reducing the size of your ministry. And God may use preaching at times to bring judgment upon a nation or upon a church to shrink its numbers. And other times we faithfully preach, there seems to be revival. So we understand it's not like a, I do A, I automatically get B. I preach, I get a convert. I preach, I get a convert. It's not a formula. But this, this suspicion and disbelief that many Christians have about God working in our world, it's, it's really sad to witness. You, know, you might be part of the faith, but are you a person of faith? Do you anticipate that God might continue to use you to do wonderful things? Now, if you're a stagnant church, an unfriendly church, an inhospitable church, you know, maybe you, you shouldn't expect a, a great deal of fruit. But if you read the Bible, why would you not be optimistic about God's work in the world? God's work in the world. So let's just recommit ourselves to believing in the power of the gospel. Amen? Don't be deflated by persecution. See it as an opportunity to bear witness to Christ. I happen to think this is a great time to be alive. I happen to think it's a great time to be alive. I feel privileged to have been born in 1973 in Canada. Just kind of as we were entering into the, the initial stages of the sexual revolution. I feel privileged to kind of know what it's like to live in a Christianized society. To have lived through a post-Christian society, and now to be living in an anti-Christian society. A lot's happened in the last 50 years. And I feel privileged to, be, to have been able to witness that and, and then to see how God is working to refine and build up his church here in my country of origin and around the world. So it's a great time to be alive, and we should anticipate that God will use us to bear much fruit. Now, fourth, we're going to be persecuted. You may think, oh, well, this, you know, this is kind of hard to take. But bear with me. Persecution bears fruit as well. Now, there's two forms of persecution that they experienced, and we should probably prepare ourselves for. The first is verbal persecution. We see that in verse 2. And the second is physical or coercive. We see that in verse 5. Let's talk about each of these. 
verbal persecution, the text says they sought to poison minds. Now, this, this Greek word is psychas, you know, psychology, psyche. You think of the, the mind. But this word, this word doesn't just refer to the thing under your skull. It's, it refers to the internal aspect of a human being. It can, it can mean life, mind, soul. It's translated in various ways in English translations, depending on the context. Collectively, it refers to the inner aspect of a person. Now, in the West, think about your worldview. In the West, we tend to separate the heart from the mind, the emotions from the rational, the intellect from the experience. But this is not, this is not a biblical mindset. It's a Western mindset. We've all grown up with this. And because of this, where, where we see this maybe affect the church is I, I've heard people say, oh, um, you know, on Sunday, I want to hear the word of God preached, but I, I don't want too much. I want more of an experience. Or this person, you know, they're a thinker, they're a commentator, they're a professor, they're a writer, whatever. I'm more of an experiential guy. I, I, so I want... I want to go to a church that's more truth-based. I want to go to a church that's more experience-based. But this, this is a false dichotomy. Both of these things are referring to the same thing. You see, if you get to a person's mind, you get to their whole interior aspect. So if you plant a lie in someone's mind, a rational, you, you tell, something that's, tell someone something that's irrational, like a man can be a woman or a woman can be a man. You might think, well, this is a, this is a falsehood, it's a lie, but it doesn't affect my emotion. Yes, it does, it affects your emotions, it affects your actions. If you plant a lie in the rational dimension of any human being, you already have the soul, you have the emotions, you have the experience, you have everything. You have everything, you even have the body. So the reason why I'm, I'm telling you this is because we cannot afford to, to dichotomize between the mind and, and, the, and the experience of the heart. If you get a person's mind, you have them. And this is why we must preach the truth because the, the mind is the, the, the doorway into the whole person. So in, when, when Paul was instructing Timothy in... Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. He's giving him his, his basic assignment. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And then he didn't say to Titus, okay, he's the mind guy. You're the heart guy. So listen, rub backs, give massages, be empathetic. There's no difference between these two things. Every Christian who's going to be a successful Christian must know the truth and experientially live the truth and love God with their body, mind, soul, and strength. All of you, you're a unified being. There are some prominent lies in our area, in our era that affect the whole person. So these are some, some prominent lies that we must address if we're going to rescue people from death, from destruction, from falsehood. So I just want to 
Pastorally, I think I have a bit of a, a sense of what's going on in our culture and in our own church. And at different points in time, there are different lies the church tends to wrestle with. We have our own little bag of lies that often are taught in churches or passed around among Christians that are destructive, that need to be confronted. We confront these lies because they affect the whole person. These are in no particular order. But one of them is, oh, we don't judge other people. Oh, really? Where'd you read that in the Bible? Well, Matthew 7, 1, my favorite verse. Well, read the context. The Bible doesn't say not to judge people. The Bible says don't judge people based upon a standard that you yourself are not judging your own life and heart on. That's why there's the speck in the eye, log in the eye. It's, it's not speaking against judgment. It's speaking against hypocrisy. The Bible says that the church will judge the world one day. Every time we preach the word of God, we are, in a sense, judging sin. We're judging ourselves against the standard of God. But this is a lie. We don't, we don't, we don't address sin. We don't want to be judgmental. You know, God forbid someone calls you judgmental. Love is love. This is another, not only is it nonsensical grammatically, but this is another lie. And I see Christians starting to use this language. Love is love. Love is whatever you want it to be. Or how about this one? My witness is a silent witness. Really? Was Paul's witness a silent witness in Iconium? Oh, he just goes there, stands and smiles. And somehow he emanates the gospel and people repent and believe. No, your witness is your lifestyle, of course, your actions, but it's also your words. If you do not preach, open your mouth and actually tell people about Jesus, guess how many people will get saved? Zero. Zero. So your witness is verbal. The church isn't essential. It's like we're, we're, now, we're now in a Gnostic culture again. We can zoom in. A lot of people, the church isn't essential. It's, it's just me and, my, me and my family can be a church. Look, if you're a Christian family and you're worshiping at home, that's a wonderful thing, but you are not a church. That's not a church. There's marriage. There's families. There's the church. The church is always under a plurality of elders. It's administering the Christian sacraments or ordinances, if you prefer. It exercises church discipline. These are the minimum aspects to the church. But a lot of people, well, we, just, we just stay home because me and my family, were the church. What you're actually doing is you're eroding Christian witness and culture. You're eroding the church institute. You're eroding the, the, the public ministry of the Christian church. Others would say, well, you're... You're hateful if you don't affirm my sexual choice. Oh, we see the lie in all of that. Okay, you don't, you don't have unfettered sexual freedom. But this is a lie that's promoted in culture. How about this one? Missions is just in other countries. You know, no, missions is when you step out your door and you meet people in your Judea, your Samaria, the ends of the earth. Another lie I, I, I hear coming out of a lot of Christians' mouths is, well, the world's too bad, so we've chosen not to have kids. Okay, then the devil wins. The devil wins because the Genesis mandate isn't deleted. It doesn't have an expiry date when culture gets really, really bad. Uh, evolution is compatible with the Bible. No, it's not. No, it is not compatible with the Bible. It's, it's a lie. The world is overpopulated. How about that? Hey, travel a little bit more. Now, it's true that there are some places that are really overpopulated. We had the unfortunate experience of going to Toronto. 
yesterday to celebrate my son's birthday. One and a half hours to travel 10 kilometers on the way in, two hours to travel about six kilometers to get out of the city. I'm like, Lord, if you call me to Toronto, I'll go, but please don't. Please call someone else, right? Now, if you live in those big cities and everyone packs into a limited area, it looks like there's too many people, but travel a little bit more. <laughs> the world's not overpopulated. How about this one? Divorce isn't a really big deal. Well, obviously we can be forgiven of any sin, but this isn't grounds for reducing uh, the sanctity of marriage. Anyway, these are a, a variety of, of lies that often circulate, not out there, within the church. And they need to be corrected with biblical preaching. Biblical preaching is rooted in the authority of the Bible and the authority of the Bible is rooted in the authority of God. So we have verbal persecution. They thought, sought to poison their minds. We'll see that the, the, the antichrist leaders of our nation, our province, our municipality, they have the platform. They, they have the media in their back pocket. They have unfettered access. They're not going to get deleted, canceled, shadow banned on social media. They can say what they want and their message goes out. They have the podium. They have the coercive power of law enforcement or the military. And it might seem at times like a, a hopeless battle, but the word of God can cut right through all those, those lines and, and do its good work. So expect, expect verbal persecution. Expect people to call you names and to poison your message and to try to control the language and make you look like you're the bad person. You're bad because you're not standing with us. And then secondly, there's physical or more coercive forms. In verse five, they actually plan on stoning them. I don't know if you've thought much about this, but can you imagine how horrible that kind of a death would be? I don't know if you've ever got hit, hit on the head with something. Remember when I was a kid, we were playing... Um, soldiers and I decided to pick up a fist-sized rock and do like a grenade throw, bounce right off my brother Matt, Matt's head, and off to the hospital he went. Um, getting pummeled with stones, dying of blunt force trauma is a horrible way to go. Now, believe it or not, this might make you feel uncomfortable, but the word of God prescribes stoning, capital punishment, for some sins, i.e. murder. By the way, perhaps you have grown up in a setting where you've been taught that capital punishment is unbiblical. That's old, old covenant. No, it's not old covenant. It's actually pre-old covenant. It's transcultural. The Bible says in Genesis I didn't make this up. The Bible says in, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, in order to preserve the imago dea, the image of God, whoever, that means anybody, who sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. So the Bible has a place for capital punishment. You might say, that doesn't sound very Christ-like. Well, you're misinterpreting Jesus 
If you think that when he's talking about slapping on one cheek or slapping on the other or carrying someone's soldier, that he's somehow negating capital punishment, that's about personal offense. And none of us has the authority granted to us by God to put people to death or to execute people because they've committed some atrocious sin. But the state does. This is why it's reinforced in the New Testament in Romans 13 that the state carries the sword. They are God's servant to reward the righteous and to penalize the evildoer. The sword is not for opening envelopes, moving the firewood around in the fireplace. The sword is a symbol of public justice and death. So the word of God uh, has a place for capital execution, but not for people who preach the gospel. But this is how they were using it. They wanted to take this form of capital execution and apply it to people that were preaching the gospel. This is a great, great example of men calling good evil and evil good by their actions. And we see this in the modern era where you're a bad person. Maybe you need some jail time. Maybe you need to be fined. Maybe you need to be fired from your place of employment. If you say, yeah, we shouldn't be chopping parts off of kids. Oh, you're a bad person. If you say we shouldn't be executing 100,000 babies in our country every year. Oh, you're a bad person. You're against women's rights. You don't love women. You're a misogynist. We see this time and time again through history. You're a bad person. You deserve to die. You deserve to be fined. You deserve to be canceled. If you're standing up for life, for basic truth, if you're preaching the gospel, in the modern era, we see this old lie starting to revive itself. We'll fine you if you preach because you're going to kill people. We'll fine you if you preach. We control the church. You need to get our approval for when you open and close. We will limit what you can and cannot say on social media or on Facebook or in the news. We will imprison you if you do not affirm the authority of the state over all of life. It boggles my mind that so many people can't see this. They can't draw the connections. They somehow think this is justified. Folks, the Nazis in, in pre-World War II Europe were very, very popular. Very popular. And over the course of many years, they polluted the minds. They controlled who could say what, who couldn't say what. And they shaped the worldview so that when they would speak things like, oh, the Jews, they're the problem. They're, they're, they're the ones running the bank and controlling the economic system. People started to believe this. If you tell people the same lie over and over and over again, you know what the sad fact is? Most people will believe it. Most people will believe it. We think we're so smart. Most people will believe it. And we might think, well, we're, we're more sophisticated now. No, we're not. No, we're not. In fact, except for murder, killing the killing of Christians, every one of these things has already happened in our own country. It's already happened. The stage is set. But what do we do in response to this? Well, we persevere. You might think these guys didn't persevere. They cut and, cut and ran. They went to another city. They left town. Well, look, the reality is when you preach the truth, sometimes you will be forced out. You may actually lose your job, but that doesn't mean you lost. They may bar the doors of your church. You just can't get back in. 
You may be run out of a country. You may be imprisoned. They they could use force in a variety of ways to, to push you out, but that doesn't mean that you've been defeated. You just, you regroup and you just keep preaching in a different location. If they force you into a different location, well, then you preach there. They force you in another location. You preach there. It's like dodging the, your opponent in the game of chess. You just keep moving it around, protecting your king. So there are times in history when Christians have been forced out of public office, when they've been forced out of the academy, when they've been forced out of their church buildings, they've been forced out of their homes. It's, it's happened. I think, well, then, then they lost. No, you, you, don't need to, you don't need to put yourself in the crosshairs. Kill me. Stone me, I'm here. This isn't the mindset that we're advocating for. It's not some sort of a, well, I, I want to be a martyr kind of a complex. But that where our faithfulness is shown is not in our location, but it's in our proclamation. Let me say that again. Where our faithfulness is shown is not in our location, but our proclamation. Now, this, I'm not suggesting that as soon as someone calls you a name, you pack up and leave. Like we need to have some, we need to resist as much as possible. Uh, Paul, when he was targeted by officials, often fought them in court. It's like, I, I, I'm, I want to appeal to the next level of, of the law. He, he would fight them in court. There's nothing wrong with fighting tyrants in court. Doesn't mean we're going to win, but we still fight. We can still fight them in court. He confronted them. He he called them out for their lies. Both Jesus and the apostles would sometimes dodge their bullets. There's there's records in 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 the Gospels where, when the Pharisees show up, it says, "And Jesus disappeared into the crowd." So we don't we don't need to necessarily expose ourselves to to bad people but we never stop preaching. If they drive us into the catacombs, we preach in the catacombs. If they drive us into our barns, we preach in our barns. And we have. If they drive us out of the country, we'll, we'll preach elsewhere. We don't cut and run, but if they, if they push us out, so be it. So brothers and sisters, I hope this is an encouraging reminder to you that we have a path to follow. We have a message to preach. It doesn't mean it's going to be smooth. Susie and I were driving through the county yesterday. And for whatever reason, we kept hitting potholes. Now, if I was driving my old 13-year-old Suburban, I wouldn't care. But we were driving our little car. And I don't know why they put these ridiculous low-profile tires on it. I think in the first six months we bought this thing, we popped the front right tire twice. And I was like, oh, we're going to pop a tire. Boom, boom. And it's frustrating, it's irritating, hitting potholes and various obstacles in the road. But if I stayed home, I wouldn't get anywhere. We still have roads to travel. They might have potholes in them. They're not perfect. There's going to be frustrations along the way. But we still have roads to travel that would take us from point A to point B. Ministry is kind of like that. It's, it's a road. It's a path. And we need to stay on it and continue moving forward. Doesn't mean it's always going to be fun. Sometimes it'll be smooth. Other times it's going to seem like an unusual number of potholes that frustrate, that irritate, that can even bring a certain measure of destruction. But we remain true. We press forward in faith. We preach the full gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we just let God do whatever God's going to do. So be encouraged by these words and follow the example of the early church.